This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Yes, good afternoon. Hope you're having a great Wednesday. Looking at the bee industry today because there are concerns around the spread of the deadly bee pest Varroa mite. It's been spreading through New South Wales for more than a year now and there are doubts building over whether or not it'll be able to be eradicated. I'll bring you the latest in that campaign before half past 12. Checking in with the Bureau of Meteorology as well today and a wrap of the state's rainfall. There's been quite a bit around in the last 24 hours. And you'll also head off to one of the state's best foodie hubs. For Chef, it's very important to have a seasonal produce and seasonal uh, fruit, veggies and, uh, you know, meat. And that's, that's, that's the beauty about being on this region. Like, we are always inspired. There is always something new. It's not Margaret River. It's not the Ord Valley. You might be surprised where it is, but there are some big opportunities on offer for producers and restaurants when it comes to WA fresh produce. And not just your normal produce. Also this afternoon, you're going to meet a couple working on a relatively different venture for the state. Yeah, your garden brown snail. We've just found that excitement around having fresh escargot, fresh snails from Australia, from WA. It's been a hit with chefs um, from Albany all the way up to Broome, over east and Singapore. Like, it's crazy. Would you do it? Snails, brown snails you might find in your garden. Don't poison them, don't tread on them. They could be worth big bucks. You'll hear about the couple working to commercialise them pretty shortly. If you'd like to share your thoughts this afternoon, the text line 0448 Always good to hear from you. It's 7 past 12. Western Australia's access to cheap natural gas could be hampering the development of renewable hydrogen projects. In a moment, you'll hear what some energy experts think should be done to help the hydrogen industry get going a bit quicker. But can you remember hearing on the show recently that ATCO Australia cancelled its plans to build a 10 megawatt electrolyzer plant designed to produce renewable hydrogen? ATCO wanted to build it at the established Waradaji Wind Farm north of Perth. Russell James is ATCO's manager of hydrogen and future fuel. He says one of the reasons they shelved those plans was because price-wise green hydrogen just can't compete with natural gas at the moment. The cost of hydrogen being produced uh, today, it's it's made up of, of two things, the cost of the equipment, uh, to produce hydrogen, but there's then also the renewable energy price. And uh, and what we've just found is uh, the cost of renewables are, are quite expensive. Um, and so in turn, the, the cost of hydrogen is just as expensive. What that does mean is there's been policy uh, mechanisms that have been discussed, things like blending targets into, into hydrogen networks. And some of those things are still being investigated. They've just taken a little bit longer to get to uh, legislated uh, positions. So at this point, the hydrogen that would be produced was just still too expensive over other forms of gas? Yes, correct. Up against uh, natural gas. And that's that's where in Western Australia we're very fortunate. We have a domestic gas reservation policy, so we've got a very low natural gas price, which does just mean the gap between a, a produced hydrogen price and natural gas is quite significant at this stage. 
That's Russell James from ATCO speaking with Lucinda Jose. ATCO had secured $28.7 million from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency Arena for that project. That money will now be used to fund other renewable energy projects across Australia. Energy consultant Ben Sereni is disappointed ATCO's project won't go ahead and he thinks there's a long way to go before hydrogen can compete with natural gas on price. I think it is surprising in the sense that this is an arena funded project and so I think everyone was sort of hoping that these projects would be able to be a test bed for how the supply chain delivery production of of hydrogen is going to work in the Australian market. So I guess it's disappointing at, at this stage. You would have been hoping that given where gas prices were recently that this would be potentially a good project to be thinking about from a risk management perspective, that while hydrogen might not be competing directly with natural gas on price at the moment, given the volatility in the gas market at the moment, that this might be a really good test bed to decide how we're going to go about producing moving and exporting or using domestically hydrogen. Well, on that point, ATCO did have plans to inject part of the the hydrogen they'd be producing into the gas distribution networks, but they were saying they just couldn't compete with WA's natural gas prices. So does that gas affordability that we enjoy in WA, is that actually hindering our renewable energy development? Yeah, I think in terms of a direct comparison, I think, you know, the injection of hydrogen into a gas network where, you know, you you would be using that for a blended residential and and some industrial offtake, I I think that might not necessarily be the best use initially for hydrogen in that form. It's It's an easy win in the sense that it can be blended directly into the gas network, but trying to compete on a dollar per kilo to what we've seen maybe in, in WA, $6 or, or whatever around gas prices at that level, you'd need to create hydrogen at less than less than a dollar a kilo in order to be competitive directly with, with natural gas on, on that price point. So even under the sort of federal government's target of trying to get under, say, $2 a kilo, or even in that $1 to $2 a kilo range, you're talking about an equivalent gas price of 8 to $16 a gigajoule. To be fair, that's sort of where the East Coast gas price has been oscillating at the moment. I mean, if you can get to that $1 or $2 a kilo, but that requires some, some pretty low input pricing from renewable sources and some pretty low capex and those sorts of things to be able to get to that number. Do you think that the policy settings within government are right to support the development of a green hydrogen industry or are there changes that need to be made there? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. I think the government is certainly trying to push frameworks that will allow the development of green hydrogen. I think what we've done so far has worked really well on the push side in terms of throwing money at projects to be able to drive down the capital cost so that we can get somewhere that is close to or close enough to parity with equivalent fuels like natural gas. But until we realistically create that offtake market, and that may include some domestic policy settings around low carbon fuel and usage, we have some of that in place with you know, the safeguard mechanism and, and those sorts of things in terms of carbon intensity of those industries. So there are some mechanisms in place. But I think moving forward, if we are realistic about using our domestic market to create some demand that we can then build on to build into an export 
market, we probably need to think about the creating demand in the domestic market at this stage. The beauty of a, of a scheme like... That's Principal Energy Consultant with Cornwall Insight, Ben Serini, speaking with Joe Prendergast. In one of those proposed hydrogen push policies Ben was talking about is a renewable hydrogen target for electricity generation in the southwest interconnected grid. The state has been consulting on the plan which would see electricity users source 1% of their energy from renewable hydrogen sources. Jai Thomas is the coordinator of energy at Energy Policy of WA, and he expects a target to be in place by 2025. The beauty of a, of a scheme like this, and it, and it looks a lot like the renewable energy target that applies nationally, where uh, essentially you place an obligation uh, on an entity that makes sense to, uh, to purchase a, a certain percentage of hydrogen. You do that via uh, certificates or some other scheme to give, give effect to it. But ultimately, uh, by placing that obligation, uh, you then allow the party with the obligation to source sort of the least cost solution to meet their obligation. And so that helps flush out the projects that are much more, I guess, progressed on the uh, on the commercial spectrum and helps give certainty to, the, to those projects, whilst those projects that are further back on that commerciality spectrum um, maybe have the certainty to not proceed. So ultimately, uh, that obligation is what helps give certainty to projects and um, and stimulate their, their sort of final investment decisions. The consultation sure. paper that you put to the industry last year had modelling of a levelised cost of hydrogen somewhere between sort of 6 and $10 a kilo uh, and your paper converts that to $78 a gigajoule um, compared to the current spot price of $5.60 a gigajoule for gas. Is that a good way to compare the two? So there's really um, many uses of hydrogen and, and hydrogen um, to create electricity is just one of the use cases for hydrogen. So the reality is there'll always be alternate metrics, whether you're trying to use hydrogen as a as an input to an industrial process or trying to use it um, for uh, for um, creating electricity. And, and, and so the work we've been doing in developing the renewable hydrogen target really seeks to hone in on the on the best use of hydrogen uh, for those specific circumstances. Uh, and ultimately, um, the comparisons will evolve over time. What we know is that the, um, that the gas price um, has been relatively stable historically, um, whilst um, being exposed to some global pressures in the last 24 months. And it's the hydrogen price and the hydrogen uh, cost curve that ultimately needs to, needs to compete with that, with that gas price. So as, uh, as projects have more uh, certainty as uh, as we get more uh, renewable energy into our power systems, those those cost curves can uh, can start to decline. Uh, but that will take time. Hydrogen isn't going to leap to commerciality in one single step. It's going to take uh, a number of years for uh, for hydrogen to become commercially equivalent with um, with other. Uh, technologies that exist today or other fuel sources that exist today. Those two figures seem very far apart. Is Mm -hmm. hydrogen ever going to work financially when gas in Western Australia is uh, affordable because of our reserve policy? The reality is hydrogen will take some time to develop as a uh, as a potential alternate um, use for gas. But this is about making sure we're on the trajectory to give life to that when that when the time comes. It may be that the best use of hydrogen 
uh, in an electricity system is uh, is for helping really fill in the gaps that um, that renewable energy uh, can't provide. Uh, and so, you know, honing in on that as the best use of hydrogen is is part of our consideration in, in taking the uh, renewable hydrogen target forward. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily uh, how do you get hydrogen to compete cost competitively with gas right now. It's about how do we make sure that we're doing all that we can to to make sure when the time's right uh, that that hydrogen can compete um, and we're ready for uh, for a future power system based on renewable energy uh, and firming, um, but ultimately uh, hydrogen um, as part of that mix. That's the coordinator of energy at Energy Policy of WA, Jai Thomas. He was speaking with Lucinda Jose. And on the topic of energy and renewable energies in particular, Josie has been in touch on the text line. Uh, Western Power urgently needs to upgrade and expand the southwest interconnected grid, the Swiss, to carry all the power which will be generated by all the wind farms around Williams and Darken. Thank you for that text. You can get in touch as well. 0448922604 is the text line. We'd love to hear from you this afternoon. 0448922604. BBC Radio WA, you're Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. It's 18 past 12. There's no chance poisonous wild mushrooms could get into commercially produced fungi products according to Australia's peak mushroom industry body. You might have been following the story out of Victoria last month where three people died and one person remains in a critical condition after eating a meal with suspected poisonous mushrooms. The woman who prepared the meal told police she'd bought the mushrooms from a major supermarket and an Asian grocer in Melbourne and it's left the industry defending itself. Georgia Beatty owns Buller Park, the biggest organic mushroom supplier in the country. She's also a board member of the Australian Mushroom Growers Association. Georgia Beatty says Australian mushroom producers follow strict safety measures and it would be absolutely impossible for toxic mushrooms to enter supply chains. In order to grow mushrooms in Australia, we've got a regulated and, and certified type of what we call spawn, which is essentially mushroom seeds. And so this is a, a commercial strain that's high nutrient and grows consistently. And so every mushroom farm in the, in the country that, that's certified to supply the supermarkets has a regulated type of mushroom seed that's used. And this is a very standard practice in, in agriculture. As a farmer, I want to know exactly the, the crop and, and how to treat it, as in how much water and what sort of temperature it likes so that I can consistently produce uh, mushrooms. You can't deviate away from these commercial strains. And so that's a, a confidence that the, the consumer can have when looking at mushrooms on the shelf. And so what's the feeling been amongst growers and producers over the past week or so? I guess it's a concern at the back of all of our minds when the foraging season comes up because it's um, just an, un an unknown. We've got multiple certifications that are audited regularly in order to supply the supermarkets in Australia and that's something that's, that's really the bigger part of our business is, is the, the checks and balances, the certifications and the audits. And what kind of conversations are going on within the industry at the moment in terms of how to respond to any potential fears? If you want to know what's safe, 
look at the label and make sure that it's grown in Australia and buy from a, a supermarket. These are our Australian food safety regulations that we've had in place for a long time that regulates our industry. So if you want to know that it's safe in Australia, it looks at the Australian Grown logo. Uh, we, ha- we haven't seen a, a reduction in, in sales. This is an unfortunate event, but our, our rigorous certifications that our, that our farms follow stay, stay in place. We make sure that every step along our um, growing process meets a certain certification and health and safety standards. And my farm's organic, so it goes that next step. That's Georgia Beatty from the Australian Mushroom Growers Association Board. She was speaking with Fiona Broom and you can read more about that story online now on the ABC Rural website. 21, sorry, 22 past 12 on the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon. Two former police officers have traded in a life of crime for a life of slime. They're establishing what they hope will be one of Western Australia's only commercial snail farms in the state's southwest. Victoria and Nick Howe began began experimenting with snail breeding 18 months ago, but they didn't realise how much interest there would be in the common brown garden snail. They now have around 15,000 snails and cafes and restaurants are queuing up to get their hands on them. We've just found that excitement around having fresh escargot, fresh snails from Australia, from WA, from the beautiful southwest of WA. Um, it's been a hit with chefs um, from Albany all the way up to Broome, over east and Singapore. Like, it's crazy. You guys are retired police officers. How did you end up here in Manjimut with a snail grow house? <laughs> uh, yes, we wanted to find something uh, sustainable to allow us to work from our property. Um, We've got three small kids and we wanted to have a sort of fantastic life down here. So we Googled it. (laughs) We we literally just put the words in, what can I do on my small um, acreage? And I say small, 40 acres. I know it's not small in any uh, in any way but sort of down here in in WA um it is small being from the UK obviously the demand um in France and Italy being you know vacations over there knew that snails was a thing um but just hadn't seen it here in Australia and I thought it'd be really interesting to look at started doing the research realized that this was something we could definitely do and we just thought we'd give it a go and that's where it all started a lot of people wouldn't realize that it's just your ordinary common brown snail yes and that does scare people a fair bit uh, when they tre- when my friends and family now tread on snails or poison them they do feel terrible they also realize that they're also treading on money potentially but yes yeah, yeah your garden brown snail um petty is another name for it and the helix exposure is another name um they are your edible snails. Um, traditionally, they over in sort of France and Italy and they hopped on as pests and, and came over probably 1800s, if you like, and uh, in, infiltrated WA. <laughs> You've experimented with this when since you've started. We're sort of 18 months down the track. We're in a, a grow house now, but you're planning a bigger and better shed. But you had them under the house. You've tried all sorts of different things by the sounds. Yes. Uh, snails traditionally are grown outdoors. Uh, we, uh, speaking to chefs, they wanted a consistent supply of snails. So snails hibernate for six months of the year. We wanted to make 
sure that we were able to give us a consistent supply. So the only way to do that was to bring our snails indoors. We have tried a greenhouse, which was too hot. We've tried under a house, which was a bit too breezy. We then insulated under the house. We have had some pests. We've had to hit the temperature, humidity, light, um, moisture. All of those things has been um, a trial and error, but we feel like we've definitely had the found the optimum conditions now. Um, in bearing in mind, we're doing this with no other help no one else is doing it so we've really had to figure out the best way and we believe that we've done that now and talk us through that so we've got um we've got shelving we've got a egg laying station over here we've got big ones we've got little ones lights are on mimicking summer daytime yes we so the, originally our snails start out on your vineyard um, avocado orchard friends and family collected us uh, the snails they go into quarantine for about three uh, 30 days just to make sure they've not ingested anything not got any pest, uh, diseases pests are sort of eliminated in that time the biggest snails we want the one they're the ones we want to breed we separate those um, we give them an area where they can eat and drink they also have pots which they lay their eggs in we take those eggs over to um, our egg box where sort of 18 to 21 days after they've been laid they hatch we then take those babies and put them in a separate area uh, where we watch them grow um, and that's really the cycle uh, that we're looking at um, is having the big snails our big babies um, and uh, mating and then growing um, and those are the ones we'll then sell on we haven't quite got to the selling stage because you're, you know, figuring out the, the the lifespan, the length of time. But you've got chefs and restaurants hounding you. Is that right? We have got a wait list. Yes, um, we've had some say some fantastic chefs and restaurants contact us really excited about the prospect of having snails on their menu um so unfortunately yes we've had to we don't we don't know the how quickly we're going to be able to supply. The demand that we have so that's where unfortunately the waitlist has had to come in and we will you know the idea is to be able to supply to anyone that wants them doesn't seem to be a huge amount of cost output at this point you've got some electricity and um, so you know how are you feeling about you know costs and and profits i guess one day uh, that's what's also really exciting about it. Yeah, the outlay um, hasn't been huge. Um, it's been more of a of time, um, and time is money. But when you've got a vision and you've got an idea, um, any work you do doesn't really seem like work, and that's what's been exciting for us. It's just been added to our daily chores. The sale of the snails, you know, being fantastic um, protein source, being the only uh, snails, fresh snails in WA, um, yeah, they can fetch a decent price. There have been other people that have sort of had the, had a go at this in WA. Some are trying to get in more exotic breeds and having struggles with that. Other people have tried and moved on to other things. Is that right? Yep, spoken to as many people I could hunt down on <laughs> on the internet that had had any sort of dealings with snails. Um, and for sure, I, I think underlying from everyone I've spoken to is it's this is such a fantastic idea. Something that, you know, is surprisingly not done more. Um, and, yeah, you know, there is a bit of work to it. Um, and I think a lot, maybe some people were doing it as a bit of a side hustle. But we've taken all of their information that they were so gracious to share with us and, and realised that it is something we could do commercially. 
I got to ask, when you guys met at Police Academy in the UK, did you ever think you'd be farming snails in Western Australia? <laughs> Definitely not. I'm not really sure what we thought was going to happen, uh, but that's what's fantastic about our family. We we uh, take the ball by the horns and run with it and enjoy it, and that's, um, you know, family is extremely important and we love living down here. So it is, uh, yeah, really far away from policing, um, but... It's, it's exciting, it's something new, and I think that's what's keeping us in, excited. Victoria Howe from Southwest Snails near Mandurup, speaking with Ellie Honeybone. And if you'd like to double check on what sort of brown snail they're farming, you can check out this story on the ABC Rural website. Ellie's story is up there on the homepage, and you never know, tonight's meal might be sorted if you just go for a wander in the backyard. Maybe you wouldn't recommend that. Uh, it's ha- 29 past 12. Now, earlier this half hour, you were hearing about some of the concerns that cheap gas, which is available in WA, was making it pretty difficult to get green hydrogen projects over the line. On the text line 0448922604, Andrew has been in touch on this topic. He says, green hydrogen is a pipe dream. It will only be viable with massive subsidies or for electricity prices to increase exponentially. Do you agree with Andrew? Is green hydrogen a pipe dream and only going to get up through massive subsidies? Or are you a little more hopeful the state will move away from fossil fuels like gas? I'm keen for your thoughts. 0448 Tony Carr is here with you now with the news headlines. Tony? Good afternoon, Michelle. The WA government says it will look at the state's changing economic circumstances as it prepares to negotiate a new wages deal with public sector workers. Existing deals will start to expire in 2024, with the bargaining process expected to begin for many unions later this year. The last round saw fierce pushback from public sector unions, including industrial action and a rally at state parliament, with the government ultimately revising its offer three times. Bill Johnston has become the first WA Cabinet Minister to declare he won't vote in favour of changes to the state's abortion laws. The changes currently before Parliament will make it easier for women to access abortions, remove some restrictions on late-term abortions and lift the limit for most women to access a termination from 20 to 23 weeks. All MPs have been given a conscience vote on the legislation. And the state government has announced an 18-month closure of the Armadale train line will begin in late November. The line will be closed between Victoria Park and Armadale from Monday, November the 20th to allow for more than a dozen level crossings to be removed and five and a half kilometres of track to be raised. Michelle, more news at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Tony. And let's head straight to the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke Huntington is along this afternoon. Let's kick things off where the weather probably is today. Luke in the Southwest Land Division, how are things looking? Yeah, afternoon, Michelle. Uh, yeah, so we had a, a cold front move through um, the southwest of the state last night. Um, it brought some moderate heavy falls uh, through certain areas. It's currently um, just weakening Wait. over the southwest. Western Goldfields and far eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division at the moment. So over that Esperance region, but only light falls expected now between one to three millimetres over that area. There are still some showers persisting over eastern parts of the wheat belt um, at the moment, but that will quickly clear um, later this afternoon. Um, there is a new ridge of high pressure coming in um, quite rapidly. So um, by by this evening, any any shower should be down near the south coast. Um, there is a there is a weak cold front approaching um, and moving through the south coast. 
uh, during tomorrow. But um, as I said, it's weak, so it's not going to contain many uh, significant showers. They're going to be fairly light, so only one to two millimetres. And that'll be for anywhere southwest of Lancelin to Narrigin to Salmon Gums uh, through those parts. Uh, we also have some uh, morning frost possible over the uh, central wheat belt, northern great southern area. Um, minimum temperature is getting down to between zero and two degrees so there is a potential of that and that's probably going to be the coldest morning of the week through that area. Um, it does warm up slightly by a couple of degrees on Friday. There's a slight chance of getting another morning of frost but it's probably less likely and going to be more isolated. Um, in terms of shower activity on Friday any showers will probably be most likely close to the south coast just in the onshore flow. Uh, once we get to Saturday um, the ridge still uh, dominates and any shower activity will probably be just along the coastal strip between Augusta and uh, Albany and on Sunday um, the ridge still dominates but it does move east and weaken during the day. There is another front come through late Sunday. Um, it'll probably hit the, the southwest corner there sort of late afternoon but again it's a fairly weak front so only light falls um, with that but showers may extend to southwest of Mandra to Bremer Bay uh, during the day. How about in northern and eastern forecast districts? It's um, been quite quite windy. I think you said that was expected to come later this week. It seems to have arrived already. Yeah, we did get a good um, fresh southerly change uh, behind that front. And just with the new ridge developing out to the west at the moment, yeah, we've got quite strong winds up along that west coastal uh, region at the moment. Um, and that'll probably uh, continue as the ridge comes in. So from tomorrow, those um, sort of fresh and gusty winds will extend to, to the land areas um, over the Pilbara, the Gascoigne and into the interior region. It'll be quite windy during that morning period. And similar conditions for, the, for Friday as well. It'll be quite a windy morning with those uh, gusty easterly winds. Um, those Easterly, gusty easterly winds will probably extend to the Kimberley on the Saturday period. Um, but on Sunday, the ridge weakens, so um, the winds should have eased right off uh, by then. So it's really just those uh, gusty easterly winds kicking in uh, from tomorrow and through the most of the weekend is really the only significant um, weather for the northern half. Very good. And how about any warnings around the state today, Luke? Um, we've just got those uh, strong wind warnings, which a lot of it's around the south and west coasts. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, there has been quite a bit of rainfall over the last 24 hours. Richard Hudson has been going through all the details. What have you got for us, Richard? Well, not much in the northern and eastern forecast districts just to start with, so nothing over one mil at all anywhere across a big part of the state. But in the southwest land division forecast districts, we'll start with five and above, and that's for the central west. So Alanuka had 12 mils, Aradale 10, Badgingara 14 to 15, Barberton East 6, Bindi Bindi 5, Canterbury 12, Chapman Valley 8, Dandarigan West 25, Dudawar 6, Eniaba 9, Geraldton had 6 to 13 across a number of locations, Durian Bay 19 to 21, Lancelin Defence 8, Mindala 6, Minganew 5, Moscar 15, Mora 7, Nabawar 11, Nambung Station 10, New Norcia had 9 to 13, Northern, uh, Northampton sorry, had seven, South Homewood five, Tabletop 13, Three Springs six to seven mils, to Braddon 11, Wailabing seven, Waradaji East had nine and Yandanooka five. There was a fair bit around in the lower west, everywhere seemed to get some so we're going to have it at 20 and above. 
Errol Lewin had a whopping 53 mils, uh, Bickley 39, Bungendore 28, Glen Eagle 21, Huntley 29, Jandicott 20, Jared Ale had 17 to 22 across three locations, Millenden 21, Mullabinny 24, Mundaring 30, Rollystone 36, Wanneroo 21, Waruna 23 and Whiteman Park 20. In the southwest, same thing, heaps around, so we'll go 20 and above there too. Beetle up 20, Cape Lewin 33, Up had 27, Four Acres 24, Carrydale 21, Margaret River 26, Millian up the same, Mount William 31, Northcliffe, Pemberton and Rosabrook 23, Scott River 21, Walpole Forestry 21 as well, Warner Glen 27, Windy Harbour 23. Then in the southern coastal region, and for the remainder of the state, we'll go back to five and above because I think some people are probably looking for this rain a bit more. Albany had 19, Amalup 13, Bremer Bay 10, Chillinup 9, Denbarker 23, Denmark 16, Gardner and Inglebourne 9, Jacob 6, Jeremungup 8, Mini Peaks 18, Metler 24, Mount Barker 7, Narracup West 16, Ongarup 8, and just north of there at the Deep Herd Station, 13 mils. Stirling's North had 7, Stirling's South 15, Tamar 10, Warrajarra 17 and Wellstead had 12. Then in the Central Wheat Belt, Ardith and Babakin 5, Beverly had between 11 and 16, Bungulla 6, Kalji 7, Doongan Peak, Grabble and Happy Valley recorded 5, Kellerberan 6 mils, Meriden had between 5 and 6, Mount Hardy 11, Mount Noddy 7, Mount Walker 6, Mount Westdale 12, Muresk 8, Narrambeen 6, Northam 6 to 7, Quadney 14, Querreting 9, uh, Shackleton 7, Yangadine 13, York had 12 mils over two days and uh, York East had 18. In the Great Southern, Boddington North 14, Brookton 12 to 15, Bullye and Chaming Up 8, Cherry Tree 11, Coondee 15, Quartering 7, Corrigan 11, Cranbrook 12, Cranham 13 over two days, Culford 13, Darken 9, Dragon Rocks 8, Dumble Young 8 to 9, Franklin 12, uh, 20, Graham Rock 6, Highbury East 8, Hyden had 5 mils, Catanning 8 to 11, Condinan 10, Coolan 8, Quida 9, Maradong 14, Mordetta 9, Narragin had 8, Newdigate 8 to 9 mils, Nyabing 13, Pingaring 8, just north of there at the Deep Herd Station they got 15, uh, Pingley 12 to 16, Pingrup East had 6, Quail up 15, Tamble up 18, Tunney 14, Wagen had between 9 and 10 mils, Wandering 9, Wickerpin had 6 to 8 mils, Wilgarra 10, Williams 13 to 15 mils, and Yellowing East had 6. So it looks like Araluan topped Thank- it with a 53. Thank you very much, Richard. Now, have you ever eaten snails? I have, but not from the garden. But now that I've checked out <laughs> those brown snails, I reckon I've got some of those in my garden. And uh, yeah, I reckon my dinner could be sorted. Absolutely. <laughs> no, look, I wouldn't recommend that. But Rad um, from Northam has been in touch to say that in Spain, the snail festivals are huge. He said you can see people lining up for snails cooked in very, very big pear pans. And that's my memory as well. People think they're a French um, delicacy, but I remember eating them in uh, tapas restaurants in in um, Spain and Spanish restaurants and things like that. Maybe um, stay away from the backyard, though. Thanks for that, Richard.
It's 20 to 1 on the Country Hour. Now, one of the big stories for Australia's cattle industry last week was that Malaysia had suspended imports of live cattle and buffalo because of concerns around lumpy skin disease. This is obviously disappointing news for our producers and exporters. Uh, Basically, Malaysia advised us uh, that they, like Indonesia, uh, had concerns that Australia may have lumpy skin disease, which of course we don't, and they have decided to temporarily pause all exports of live cattle and buffalo from Australia. So that news coming in late last week, well... The live export vessel, the Angus Express, has been loaded up with nearly 2,000 head of cattle and some buffalo as well in Darwin this week, and it's now setting sail for Malaysia. What has happened? In a statement from the Federal Department of Agriculture, it says the general situation with Malaysia has not changed. Exports of live cattle and buffalo from Australia remain suspended. However... Approval has been provided by the relevant Malaysian authorities to allow this consignment to proceed as the import permit was issued prior to the suspension. So that's why the Angus Express is taking about 2,000 head of cattle and buffalo from Darwin to Malaysia this week. Now, the Country Hour is aware of another vessel due out of Darwin later this week, also bound for Malaysia. We understand some of the cattle ships this week have been sourced from a property that is actually owned by a Malaysian state-owned corporation. Now, it's important to say that the federal government maintains that Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. You can read more about this story online if you search for ABC Rural. There are questions over whether Australia will be able to eradicate the deadly bee parasite varroamite. Another detection of varroamite was confirmed at Kempsey on the New South Wales mid mid-north coast this week but its location has beekeepers questioning how it was spread. Shannon Mulholland from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry says hives in the new eradication zone will be destroyed. We had a beekeeper in the Kempsey area that was undertaking his regular 16-week alcohol wash checks on Sunday and detected a suspect mite during those checks so he's reported that to the DPI straight away which was excellent We were able to have our crews out there first thing Monday morning to check the apiary where um, sadly they did find another mite. We have had those samples rushed down to our laboratories in Sydney where they had that confirmed uh, yesterday morning. So we have implemented a new biosecurity order so that uh, there are now emergency eradication and surveillance zones in place around that general Kempsey area. It's not clear how the varroa mites got to Kempsey. The nearest red zones are in Coffs further north and around Newcastle further south. We're putting a lot of effort into our tracing and investigations teams at the moment to understand how the mites got to Kempsey uh, and we will be releasing more information on that in the coming days and weeks as we learn more about that situation. Steve Fuller, President of the Crop Pollination Association of Australia, is worried about this latest detection in an area that had been free of the mites. Knowing this this beekeeper personally, and uh, he doesn't move his hives, I'm really concerned. Um, Someone either has moved hives near him with Roa, or it's natural spread. Should we be concerned that this that Varroa mite could possibly have now spread from this Kempsey area down to pollination areas? Everywhere those bees could have been, exactly right. Especially almonds, 
especially when they're meeting with beekeepers from Victoria, possibly South Australia and Queensland. This could just blow it right open. Well, the DPI say it's still technically feasible to eradicate it. What do you think the chances actually are? Um, I think nil now. This is another trigger point of um, going to management. It's another to- another thing that's been found in the blue zone. How many trigger points are we going to break before we actually start talking about Plan B? Kim Honan, Lara Webster and David Corton with that report. It's quarter to one. When you think of the food regions in Western Australia, you might think of places like Margaret River or Manjimup, maybe the northern food bowls of Carnarvon and the Ord Valley. What about the Midwest? You might be surprised by how much food is on offer in that region. So to bring the foodies together, the Midwest Food Industries Alliance has been running since 2019. Executive Officer Gilly Johnson says the Alliance has seen a lot of small producers come out of the woodwork. We are known as a food industry cluster. So that means that we deal with all parts of food and beverage in the region. We exist really, I suppose, there's four things to connect, partner, uh, promote and support all of our local producers, but also connecting into all parts of the supply chain. And Chef Nadine, how much of the product that you serve at your restaurant in Geraldton, Leon? is locally sourced? So 100% of our menu is locally sourced. If we don't source it locally, we try to make it in the restaurant. If we don't make it, it's off the menu. So all the meat, all the goat, all the fish, the uh, squid, all of these items, they are 100% from Geraldton. Um, uh, All the veggies, all the mainly most of the spices they are uh, from the Midwest and from the from uh, the WA region, and that's that's our aim. Is like we want to be the the restaurant that we are a hundred percent from the Midwest for the Midwest, which is extraordinary because we know that there's a lot of food produced in the Midwest. But um, I guess the way I've often thought about it is that it, that they're commodities that are produced here. How what sort of variety is there of uh, local ingredients available? It's a great question and that's something we've talked about at the Taste of the Midwest over the last couple of days is the fact that um, where there are gaps there are also opportunities so for example in our region here Nadim's mentioned all that beautiful protein produce but we actually don't have a, a pasture based chicken producer at, at this moment. Our closest is more down in the Midlands area in the Dandarigan area but that gives someone an opportunity and so the connections between the hospitality industry in, in places like Alayan and also the alliance and our producers is for us to understand what those gaps are but if to give you I suppose an example here over the last two days so we've had dairy products from our goat dairy and bookera dairy we've had um, vegetables and fruit from four different producers across the region and uh, that's been 100% Um, our goat has been local our lamb has been local our beef has been local and our seafood has been local so pretty much bar the salt and pepper all of those main ingredients have actually come from our region here but I also look at and say for example if you take mushrooms we don't have a mushroom producer here but you don't need a thousand acres to grow mushrooms you can actually grow mushrooms in a couple of shipping containers and so these are the things where the alliance and our connection and partnerships can be because if there's someone out there that thinks I really love mushrooms and I'd like to grow mushrooms well we'd love to hear from you (laughs) because there's a there's a gap and an opportunity there. Yeah, have you got a wish list, Nadine? 
Uh, we have like the, the best thing about being in gelatin it's seasonal like for chef it's very important to have a seasonal produce and seasonal uh, fruit veggies and uh, you know meats because we notice throughout the year we change our meat uh, meat options because in 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 winter you will have a different taste of the meat than when you have it in spring than when you have it in uh, autumn or when you have it in summer and that's 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 the beauty about being on this region like you can we it's we are always inspired there is always something new like with that connection of the uh, food uh, alliance and uh, uh, gilly that's what she's doing putting us all together hearing from different people that they grow even at the house or a small quantity of things it's always give us like yes bring it us to us we can cook it like we've done a simple example today like you know that the the aioli that we just made today yes, the girls have just just made it now from the local ingredients we said here we go we're gonna put it in our cooking today like you know it's these things are are really important are really amazing for for us as chefs and you know as a restaurateur to keep changing the menu to keep doing everything different and seasonal and give give a full um, amazing picture of the midwest for the tourists for the people that they visit because gilly made a, a very good point about people when they come and visit the midwest they want to try the midwest they want to try what we have here in the region and how we can put that into plate it's really amazing and we need that support from the government for the food alliance so that can grow and that can give us more connection and more things because as, as a restaurateur it's hard to go directly to each one and ask them what they have but if we have an organization that people can go to and us as chefs can go to so we can get connection and you know get everything in one in one place that will be amazing you got someone to do the shopping for you. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Cinder, <laughs> if you'd seen my car driving up here and bringing all the produce, but the other thing I and I failed to mention, there was another another group of produce that we featured, and that's our honey and our oils and our granola and things like that. So we we along from a produce point of view, we have people who fish, who farm, who grow, who create, but also who forage. So um, we have a, a a small but growing indigenous bush foods, um, you know, focus as well in the area have organizations like Medac Fresh and uh, uh, Yamaji Southern uh, Corporation who've got a new joint venture in growing cucumbers and things so you know I think there's a there's a lot of energy coming into the space and I do feel that the important thing is sometimes people think you've got to be really big you know that you've got to scale so there is obviously we're, we're on the cusp of a major raw commodity growing region here where people you know we, we've got big grains a big grains industry here but we also have small but mighty smaller producers and I think the connections of those into people like Chef Nadim is so important because someone can go, I can still participate as a producer even though I'm small um, because there is an opportunity for me to sell my produce into a restaurant that's looking to be pro-local produce. Gilly Johnson is the Executive Officer of the Midwest Food Industries Alliance and Nadim Tokia from Layanne Restaurant in Geraldton. Speaking with Lucinda Joris at the recent Midwest Minganew Expo, just chatting about the potential of that region, the Midwest, as a foodie hub. It's eight to one, sticking with food on the country hour. When you pick up a packet of sesame seeds in a supermarket, there's an almost 100% chance they were grown overseas. And that's despite sesame being grown 
here in Western Australia, in the top end and over east as well, in the hope of reducing reliance on imports, creating a strong sesame seed industry in Australia, a national sesame central research and innovation hub has been launched in Rockhampton. Dr Olivia Reynolds from AgriFutures says this industry has a lot of potential. We've actually brought uh, or looking to bring in seed that will be a game changer for industry, allowing us to potentially grow sesame even further south uh, than we currently do. So we're looking at expanding um, further into New South Wales, as far south as New South Wales and, and also southeast Queensland with these new genetic varieties that will allow for that more sort of cooler, uh, cooler weather climate um, growing capability. Why is that? important given the growth of the industry? Well we recognise that farmers are seeking you know diverse crops across Australia um, and having these opportunities and having um, a, a larger area under which that we can plant sesame really provides that opportunity. We've got a significant opportunity to displace the currently 100% imported uh, sesame in Australia with Australian grown sesame so we're really excited to be able to see the land under which sesame is planted really expand both across the north and, and further south. At the moment um, we import um, all the sesame that we currently consume in Australia. Of course, there are some local market sales and so forth of, of, of the area um, that we do plant to sesame in Australia, um, but it's almost 100%. So a significant opportunity for Australian growers to look at this as a diversification option um, for their uh, farms and, and certainly um, look at that product displacement in the marketplace. And there's such a broad range of products, you know, that we can use sesame for, and there's a lot of great benefits of sesame um, a lot of great attributes. You know, people are seeking healthier options um, to incorporate into their diets and sesame is one of those options. Oh, I think we'll be looking at both a domestic and an export market. Uh, I think the clean green Im image that Australia has makes it a really appealing um, opportunity for our export um, to consider sesame as an export market. Uh, people do seek um, Australian grown produce very commonly and sesame will be no different. What have been the barriers or reasons why it hasn't really taken North prior to now. So back in 2017, um, a, a significant moment in Sesame's life <laughs> occurred, and that was um, we've got new genetics. Previously, uh, Sesame um, only had what we termed non, uh, sorry, shattering genetics, and largely Sesame are grown across the world is hand harvested. So that wasn't such a big issue. When we look at a place like Australia or other Westernised countries where mechanical harvesting is is essentially a requirement to make that are an economically viable crop, then we needed to have a genetic pool that um, allowed us to mechanically harvest. So um, we now do have um, non-shattering uh, sesame genetics, both black and white sesame. So um, we have those two different um, varieties available and that's a game changer for us. It means that we can now mechanically harvest that crop and it's an economically viable option to do so. Dr. Olivia Reynolds from AgriFutures speaking to Jasmine Hines. Peter Foxwell is a farmer in Queensland who's been tinkering with sesame for years and he's excited about the momentum that's building in the industry. Yeah, this is exciting to get all the players in the industry together. There's researchers from a number of universities um, here with CQU as the lead uh, researcher. Um, but to get processes and uh, seed companies and um, and researchers all together and particularly AgriFutures and CSENA uh, together and, and put money where their, where their mouth is, um, is, is really going to be of great benefit to the industry, I think, developing. And you've been growing sesame uh, for a number of years now. Can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, we've been growing different varieties over the last six or seven years. So it started with some shattering varieties, some local uh, Australian varieties. Um, they, they grew really well. The quality, seed quality, oil quality was really good. Um, we've currently moved on to um, non-shattering new lines that have come in from, from overseas, particularly Israel and uh, United States, and they're showing great potential um, for um, having a fit into our current farming system. And for people not involved with sesame, what does shattering and non-shattering mean? Uh, it's, it just means that the, the seeds fall out very easily when they're touched with a harvester or, or, or a wind, so um, you know, st- a stiff breeze or, or something like that. So if the seeds are going to stay in the, in the capsules until they're thrashed out with a harvester, it means we're going to get a higher percentage of the seed grown in the bin, and that's, it's no good losing half the crop on the ground. So that's, that's a, a non-shattering line. We'll get a higher percentage of the seed in the bin. And what made you want to be involved with sesame? Uh, I just see it as, a, as an opportunity to have a, uh, another crop that will fit into our system. I think prices will be good. There's a demand for Australian-grown sesame. Uh, we're good at growing, not just us, I mean, Australian farmers are good at growing um, clean crops with a reputation around the world. So there's an uh, export potential there. But the Australian demand is, is quite large, and I think that's where we should be starting. Um, but as, uh, the sesame is, is just a... It's just a good fit, uh, and it probably will be right across northern Australia for a lot of growers. We use the same planting, uh, cultivating, spraying, harvesting equipment that we would for any other grain crop. Um, we're, we're predominantly summer cropping here, so if our rain comes a little bit later to plant um, cotton, uh, for example, or, or sorghum or, or maize, um, sesame can be planted a little bit later. Uh, some of the varieties a little bit quicker. Um, so it just gives us another opportunity to have a crop in the ground if rainfall comes a little bit later than normal. That's Queensland sesame grower Peter Foxwell. This new $2 million sesame central in Rockhampton is a collaboration between AgriFutures Australia, the Cooperative Centre for Developing Northern Australia and CQ University. Heading up to the one o'clock news, but first off to the markets. Almost 3,000 sheep were yarded at the Katanning sale today, a total of 2,905, which is up 427 from last week. Tracy Kilner was at the sale. What was quality like today, Tracy? Numbers were up for an improved quality yarding of 2,905 sheep and lambs at Katanning. Lamb prices trended up this week with quality and two additional processes vying for numbers. The heavier lamb categories gained $20 with the best selling to $135 a head. Heavy ewe mutton gained marginally on quality with merino selling to $80 with a fleece while the weather's ease selling to $81 a head. Lightweight lambs sold to $50. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $20 to $73 a head. Trade weight lamb gained selling from $50 to $103 and a quality lineup of heavy lambs sold to $135 a head. Store ewes made from $15 to $55, medium weights sold from $30 to $70 and heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $60 to $80 a head. Ram lambs made from $33 to $50, while mature rams eased $10, selling from $10 to $40 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much, Tracy. So 2,905 yarded at the Catanning sheep sale today. That's it from me for the Country Hour. It's one o'clock.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.